Blog Talk Radio. Bridge in New York, 
or you will call on more federal spending, which is what he did today. But Obama has made numerous proposals to increase spending on bridges, roads, and other infrastructure projects, but Republicans in Congress have blocked those efforts. The Tappan Zee Bridge is currently in the process of being replaced, financed by a record $1.6 billion federal loan. The old bridge, which opened in 1955, has fallen into disrepair and is serving a daily capacity above what it was designed for. Wow. While, yeah, while Congress has failed to provide the funds needed to move forward, Obama is using alternate methods, such as the loan, uh, to help rebuild the uh, country's crumbling infrastructure. And the president will also highlight efforts by the administration to cut through red tape and modernize the federal infrastructure permitting process and reduce project approval timelines, the White House officials said. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden will appear in Cleveland to give a speech on similar themes of investing in infrastructure and the economy. As part of the Infrastructure Week 2014, AFL-CIO Richard Trumka uh, president will uh, speak at a rally on Thursday in front of the AFL-CIO headquarters about the vital need for upgrading our infrastructure and the positive impact uh, doing so will have on the economy. Trump has said putting money in roads and bridges is like planting seeds, corn, investing in good jobs yields a good return. When you put seed in the ground, you get something to harvest. When you put Cement in the ground, you get roads. When you put steel in the ground, you get train tracks. You get it? But if you don't put the seed in the ground, that's not smart. It's not sensible. It's not thinking like business. It's cutting yourself off at the knees, and that's what these politicians are doing to the American economy. It's right. Trunker pointed to a recent American Society of Civil Engineers report that said the country needs to spend $3.6 trillion just to make sure that our current infrastructure doesn't fall apart, with similar investment needed to create the next generation infrastructure that will grow the economy. Follow updates on the Infrastructure Week on Twitter using the hashtag #RebuildRenew and learn more about Thursday's job and infrastructure rally in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's pretty sad. I mean, $3.6 trillion just to keep us alive? Just to keep the road yeah, just to keep passable. us alive. And you got these Republicans refusing to put any money into infrastructure. I mean, what's the matter with these bastards? I mean, well, they the want to destroy the country. That's what, that's what it is. Uh, that's to destroy, their agenda. They're out to destroy the entire country, you know. Let the infrastructure fail and, uh, you know. Let people go let hungry. Let people go hungry. You know, throw us into a third world country, and what do they do? Who the hell knows? Well, they'll move to they'll someplace move. else. They'll move move to a nice European country. Yeah, and have the, and have their factory here, paying yeah. people so three dollars an so hour. So anybody listening to the show who could possibly vote for Ryan or Cruz or Rubio or any or Rand Paul or any asswipe, okay, who's out there, you know, trying to destroy this country, okay, economically. Okay, by stopping infrastructure spending, stopping spending on social issues, stopping stopping it. It's just a, just a freaking moron. I'm sorry. I mean, look what's happening here. I mean, you got you got Obama. I'm sorry. He's trying to do some stuff. He's not. He's he's definitely not uh, not a golden boy. But at the same time, you know, at least he's got the right idea. Like, let's spend some money on infrastructure here. Yeah. You know. I mean, that makes a lot more sense than. Spending money on this tar sands thing from uh, Canada. Canada. I mean, that is. Who's that going to benefit? Nobody but the oil companies. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nobody. How about this? Five myths that keep you from getting a better credit card. Right. And this will help people. You're not happy, but you're afraid to leave. You wonder if there's anything better out there, but you don't have the energy to look. No, we're not talking about a relationship or a job here. We're talking about your credit card. It's very common to hold on to a credit card for years, even if it's not serving you well anymore. You may have become complacent or you're worried about what switching credit cards might do to your credit, but by not considering other options, you may be missing out on something much better. Here are five reasons that you may be stuck in a card that's not right for you. Number one, a new card will hurt my credit score. One of the main reasons consumers are afraid to shop around is that they fear that doing so will hurt your credit score. They will, there will be an inquiry on your credit report that only shaves a few points off your score, usually the range of three to seven points. And after a year, 
the inquiry won't count. And while opening a new account may cause your credit score to dip a little, the effect, if any, should be temporary. Pay it on time, keep your balances low, and things will even out in a couple of months or so. Number two, rejection will hurt my credit. Getting turned down doesn't hurt your credit score. In fact, no one except you and the lender will know you were turned down. Number three, switching is a hassle. Not anymore. Most card issuers will make it easy for you to apply online by phone, and you will usually get a decision within minutes. I'm overwhelmed. That's a common reaction when you start trying to compare all the hundreds of cards out there. Keep it simple. If you pay your bill in full, look for straightforward reward cards. Carry a balance, look for a low-rate card you can use to transfer your balances and get out of debt. In both cases, a card with no annual fee will save you even more. It's just not worth it. Would it be worth $600 to switch cards? One estimate, one expert estimates that's how much the average rewards card uses leaves on the table each year. If you carry a balance, the low-rate card may save you much more, even more in interest charges if you transfer the balance. Even if you only save $50, why not put that money in your pocket? You could also switch to the only union-endorsed worker-friendly credit card program. You can carry other cards. Why aren't you using the only credit card that puts solidarity in your pocket? You have three card choices. And you can, um, two cards that offer unlimited 1.5% cash back rewards on every purchase. And they have exclusive hardship grants for cardholders and 24-7 U.S.-based customer service. So that's something to think about. So you can, if you're a union member, you can, you're eligible for a credit card through the union. Yeah. So think about switching. It, whatever it is, it could help you. Okay. This is um, uh, time to rebuild America and celebrate Infrastructure Week. Okay. We will invest in America. Rebuild, uh, renew. It says, today we kick off Infrastructure Week 2014, which will explore funding solutions and, practice and best practices to modernize our aging infrastructure and create good middle-class jobs. Events will be held from May 12th to May 16th and will focus on major infrastructure challenges, freight and good mo goods movement, passenger transportation, drinking water, and wastewater treatment, Events will be held around the country and details on specific events and locations as well as the full agenda and registration information are available. And we will read that in a, little, in a few minutes. The week's events are being put on by AFL-CIO and AFL-CIO Transportation Trade Department, North America Building Trades Union, and the Council on Competitiveness, the Chamber of Commerce, the Brookings Institute, uh, Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. Well, that's interesting. Uh, a conservative uh, think tank, and Building America's Future, 1776, the Organization for International Investment, the Value of Water Coalition, and the National Association of Manufacturers and dozens of other affiliate organizations. The Jobs and Infrastructure Rally will be held Thursday, May 15th at 1 p.m. at AFL-CIO headquarters in Washington, D.C. All right? And let's just see here. It says online, what are the events? What they got for you here. Takes a minute for it to come up, folks. Well, it says full calendar. Monday? Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do Monday? We only had Monday. Well, this was the it's calendar. It said the 15th. This is starting. Well, okay. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, forget about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday. Today's Wednesday, so let's go on. Thursday. Let's see what happened on Wednesday.
I'll tell you, I, I just makes me sick. You know, everybody's touting Hillary. Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. You know, personally, I can't stand a woman, but you know, but I, there is a woman who I believe is a far, far better candidate than Hillary could ever be, and that's uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. who's, uh, you know, and she's a very, very strong union union supporter, and I think that she would make a great presidential candidate. Oh, I do, too. You know, in, in, in the upcoming There's election. There's a lot of things I love and about her. God, please put Hillary to rest, you know, just put her to bed, you know what I mean? And she may be brain damaged, uh, you know, we'll find out. You know, before so she was brain damaged, she had a problem. She, in she my had a book. problem before she was brain damaged, and now she's maybe brain damaged. So let's let's put somebody who isn't brain damaged, Elizabeth Warren, who will fight for the working man, for working people, against these goddamn bankers. She uh, has and, she yeah. has a video on the yeah, CFL-CIO yeah, blog. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's how it's an hour long. It's an hour long. I don't know if I can play any, any of it. Just play a little bit of it. We'll, we'll, we'll take a little taste of it. Let's have your attention, please. Richard Trump got in. Really good. First of all, let me say welcome to the House of Labor. And I, wanna, and I wanna thank you all for coming. And I have to tell you, we are thrilled, and I mean absolutely thrilled, to host this gathering, along with our co-hosts, American Family Voices that are here. Please stand up. The officers here. Stand up. Give them a round of applause. And we're also glad that you're here while we and Union Plus are displaying the paintings uh, of the legendary working man artist, Ralph Fassanella. So I hope you get a chance to look at them when you're out of here. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in an age of radical inequality, made constantly worse by policies and ideas. Buffering. That seem to have momentum, that are driven by greed and by fear. Now. Yeah. Uh, it's too bad. reform with a powerful new consumer financial protection bureau, and Elizabeth Warren now sits in the hallowed Senate seat once occupied by Ted Kennedy. She still has a very, very powerful pen a strong brain, and a warm heart. And she's putting all of them to use. Uh, In a little more than a year, she's written bipartisan legislation to restore Glass-Steagall, to re-regulate banks, to challenge secrecy in our trade negotiations, and to advocate for young people in the fight against college loan debt peonage and for affordable higher education. Now, she's held the feet of banks, uh, regulators to the fire, and if the press is to believe, she was a critical factor and actor uh, in the appointment of Janet Yellen, the first woman to be the chair of the Federal Reserve. Not bad, Senator, not bad at all. And Senator Warren is proving true what FDR showed us all, that we will turn out for and fight for the leaders who fight for us. We certainly turned out here tonight. What a great crowd. Uh, we're joined by progressives of all stripes. We have Netroots bloggers. We have leaders in the women's movement. We have environmentalists. We have civil rights leaders. We have community activists. We have members of the disability community. We have Wall Street activists. We have plenty of labor activists and others too numerous to mention. Now, A Fighting Chance is more than just another political book. It tells the truth. It's the kind of book that most politicians write after they retire. 
or only allow it to be published after their demise. See, in its patience, Senator Warren tells the truth about powerful people in both political parties and about the way our democracy has been subverted by the power of organized money. And at the same time, it tells the story of an earlier Elizabeth Warren, not the people's champion, not the Harvard law professor, but the middle class, every woman of the 1970s. It tells her past from that time to this. And when you read it, you understand where she gets her guts and where she gets her grit. All of this is to say that A Fighting Chance is a book well worth reading by a woman, quite frankly, I could not be more proud to call my friend and my sister, our champion, Senator Elizabeth Warren. organizing this. It's fun to be here. It's fun to be here with people and to have a chance to talk about something that's really important to me. And there is no place I'd rather be right now than right here. I want to tell you a little bit about the book, and I thought I'd read a couple of passages from the book, and then I hope we will have lots of time for questions and answers so that we can talk about whatever it is you would most like to talk about. I'll tell you about the book generally. Uh, The book is, um, it starts as a very personal book. Uh, It's a book about my family, uh, my mom and my dad. Uh, It picks up when I'm 12. Uh, I was a late-in-life baby. Uh, I was, uh, my mother used to call me the surprise. (laughs) Yeah, it took me a while to figure out what that meant. But by the time um, I was 12 years old, uh, all three of my brothers were off in military service. And um, living at home with my mom and my dad, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad sold carpet, and he had a heart attack. And um, had a long period without employment, and then um, the bills stacked up. We lost our family station wagon, and we came right to the edge of losing our home. My mother was 50 years old when she took her best dress out of the closet and pulled it on, put on her high heels, and walked over to the Sears to get a minimum wage job. And I'd just like to stop and point out, back in the 1960s, a minimum wage job would keep a family of three afloat, and that's what it did for us. our house, and, uh, but there was no money for college. Um, I'm one of those kids who married at 19, babies in my early 20s, but I did have chances, chances to go to school. I ended up at a public university, a commuter college that cost $50 a semester. I know that's a number today that causes people to laugh, but you know, it is a reminder There was a time in America when we invested in our kids, and we said that any kid who worked hard and showed a little promise could go to an affordable college. And again, it mattered, it opened doors for me, and uh, it's something that I think is important for us to do again, to make college affordable for all our kids. book is about is about a personal story because I believe it's America's story about what we were about what's happened to us and about where we're headed it's also a story though about fights it just really is the story about fights and fighting it's a story about fights over whether or not families 
who've been laid low by medical problems and job layoffs and a family breakup or a death in the family will have a chance to right themselves economically. It's about fights with the banks over the giant bailout. It's about fighting to get the consumer agency, and ultimately it's about fighting for a place in the United States Senate. Now, one piece of this that I want to focus on that I thought I'd talk about a little bit tonight is about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and, and Rich already mentioned it. Just for those of you who aren't terribly familiar with it, I just want to point out to you where the world stood by the early 2000s. By the early 2000s, it was not possible in America to buy a toaster that had a one in five chance of bursting into flames, burning down your house, and putting you out on the street. It was not possible. It was, however, possible to refinance a home you already owned with a mortgage that had a one in five chance of ending up costing you your home. It was not only possible, it was happening all over America. And what was the difference between toasters and mortgages? The difference was the United States government. The United States government said the only way we're ever going to make markets work on products like toasters or medicine or children's toys is to make sure there are basic safety standards so that manufacturers can get out there and compete all they want, but they've got to compete on things you can see. They can compete on price. They can come up with a better idea. They can do all those things. But they don't get to compete by cheating people. They don't get to compete by hurting people. There was an agency, in fact, multiple agencies, to make sure that happened with physical products, but not with financial products. And the consequence was, as we saw, Millions of people were cheated out of their homes, and part of the consequence of this process was mortgages were packaged, sold down the line to pension funds, to towns, to communities all across this country, and it brought down our economy. So here we are in the middle of the financial crisis. It's 2009. And I had an idea that I've been working on for a couple of years for a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Basic ideas, really just like for the other agencies. Get out there and compete on the price, compete on things that are visible, but you don't get to compete by hiding more tricks back in the fine print than the next guy. You don't get to improve your profits by making people think the risk and the price are in one place and in fact they're in another. So that's what the consumer agency was about. And one particular reason I wanted to talk about it here and tonight is that the fight, the, the fight for the consumer agency began in this building. It began in this building up on the eighth floor. It began when Damon Silvers, who was then working as uh, we were partners in the Congressional Oversight Panel, uh, fighting with the big banks over the bailout, called together groups from all kinds of perspectives to have a meeting about financial reform. Okay. I'm going to stop that. It, it, it's it, uh, 54 minutes. And it's really. very good. Yeah, I would definitely go to it. And yeah. You can get this. It's on YouTube, actually. And it's uh, it's entitled Senator Elizabeth Warren um, comes to the AFL-CIO. Yeah, AFL-CIO, right? So uh, check that out. And she's talking about the book that she's writing, a Fighting Chance. Yeah, a that? Fighting Chance. Yeah, and it sounds like a great book. Oh yeah, and yeah. she's a good speaker. She's very yeah, versatile. Very, very, yeah, yeah, she really Boy, is. she's a wonderful woman. I oh, I wouldn't uh, I, I would play the rest of this, but I, I think we should. Go we have some other things that, but if yeah. you want to go to that, I know I am. I yeah. want to hear the rest yeah. of it myself. It's yeah. very good. So anyway, it's uh, it's good to know that I I, I really like her. Yeah, the only so the only thing that I'm pensive about, of course, is that no one she was, you know. When anybody's uh, a party member, you yeah, always have exactly. to you always you know, have to be worried a, about that. She's a Democrat, but you know, yeah, well, I don't know what else you can do. But uh, she seems very honest. Well, she seems like an honest person, yeah. 
and uh, too honest for the banking community, and that's why she lost her job. Yeah. And but God, I love it because there's a lot of people behind her that believe like we do that this country needs an reform. Voice and needs yeah. reform and needs banking reform needs you know reforms all over the place. You know, financial reform. And by God, so, you know, if, if I hope would, it'd I, be great if the AFL CIO oh, would know, back if, her. If they would put her in, if they would run Let's her, have her be Hillary, our candidate. Instead of Hillary, yeah, uh, man, this this woman would be would be a real phenomenal. Champion. I think she'll be, be great. phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I have uh, nine terrifying stories of injustice from Matt Taibbi's new book, The Divide. He has a new book. All right. Yeah. In his new book, The Divide: American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap, Matt Taibbi takes a look at the growing problems of inequality in the justice system. Taibbi shows through many examples the way that justice works in the United States. It is pretty starkly divided between the wealthy and successful, and mostly white, and the rest of the country. Well, that's true. If you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, or Chinese, you don't get the same justice. The system assumes that wealthy people are innocent, even when they commit crimes, and their punishments are either non-existent or minor. Poorer Americans, on the other hand, are assumed to be guilty and face harassment and punishment well beyond their times, particularly when coupled with the treatment the rich get. Taibbi summarizes the divide. Obsessed with success and wealth and despising failure and poverty, our society is systematically dividing the population into winners and losers, using institutions like courts to speed the process. Winners get rich and get off, losers go broke and go to jail. It isn't just that some clever crook on Wall Street can steal a billion dollars and never see the inside of a courtroom. It's that, plus the fact that some black teenager a few miles away can go to jail just for standing on the street corner that makes the whole picture complete. Here are nine stories from Taibbi's book that show the drastic divide between the justice that the rich see in the U.S and the justice the rest of us see. HSBC, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank Corporation. The company admitted to laundering up to $7 billion for Central American drug cartels. It also supplied more than $1 billion to Al-Raji Bank of Saudi Arabia, whose founder was an original benefactor of Al-Qaeda and whom was caught supplying travelers' checks to Chechen extremists. A long list of other alleged crimes, including funneling money to Iran, North Korea, and the Sudan, countries listed as state sponsors of terrorism. HSBC paid a $1.9 billion civil fine, equal to about five weeks of revenue for the company. But neither the company or any of its employees face criminal charges. Number two, Jerome. Jerome was living with his child's mother and her sister. The sister called the authorities on Jerome in an effort to get him kicked out of the house. The mother, who did not register Jerome as a resident in the house, was charged with welfare fraud and did a year in jail. Number three, Bank of America. The bank teamed up with Countrywide to sell more than $1 billion in questionable loans to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac through a program called Hustle. The program removed underwriters and compliance offices from the loan process in order to make sure that loans move forward, never backward. No criminal charges were brought against anyone. Countrywide CEO Angelo Mozillo paid $67.5 million in civil fines and was banned from serving as an officer in a public country. Andrew Brown. While Brown had previously had trouble with drugs and the law, he was trying to straighten his life out. One night on his way home for work, he was dressed in work clothes and wearing a name badge and was, taking, was talking to a neighbor in front of his own apartment building at about 1 a.m. Police told him he was blocking pedestrian traffic, and he, when he tried to explain that he was coming home from work, he was arrested, handcuffed, and put in a van, taken to his precinct, strip-searched, and charged. After numerous run-ins with law enforcement in the past, he decided to fight back against the ticket since he had only been standing in front of his own building and since it was 1 a.m., there was no pedestrian traffic for him to block. 
Multiple lawyers who were assigned to him advised him to plead guilty and take a fine, which would add a misdemeanor to his record, even after he told them he wanted to fight it. Eventually, a judge dismissed the case, but but also only after advising Brown to take the charge and pay the fine. Wells Fargo. The bank certified 6,320 home loans for federal banking through 2010. Despite having internally assessed the loans and found them seriously deficient, no criminal charges were brought against the company or its executives. Anne-Marie Sibley. Sibley was a 36-year-old writing teacher in Portland, Oregon, who was coming back from, from a spa, missed her bus, and decided to walk home. Police stopped her on suspicion of prostitution. Officers said she was looking into the windows of passing vehicles. When she tried to show them the receipt from the spa, officers took it from her. She was afraid that the only physical evidence that supported her case would be gone, so she tried to take it back, knocking a police notebook to the ground. That got her a charge of harassment to go along with the prosecution accusation. She eventually beat both cases in court. Citigroup. The company certified thousands of loans for federal backing, despite an internal assessment that the loans were deficient. Citigroup paid $158 million in civil fines, but no criminal charges were brought against anyone. Abacus Federal Savings Bank. This tiny family-owned bank in New York's Chinatown wedged between two noodle shops in one of the poorest parts of town, was the only bank to to be indicted in the financial crisis. Nearly 20 employees of the bank, including some making as little as $35,000 a year, were indicted and brought into a courtroom chained together by their hands and feet, even though some of them had already been arraigned and released on bail. Effectively, the bank was charged with granting loans to borrowers who could not afford mortgages but didn't quite want to reveal their income. But the mortgage owners in the case actually paid their debts, and the company had one of the lowest default rates in the entire country. Fannie Mae actually made $220 million in profits off the abacus-issued loans. The case was portrayed as striking at the heart of the financial crisis, even though abacus neither was big enough to have a, wasn't even big enough to have an impact. They actually didn't engage in most of the criminal practices that most bigger banks did. But there was one instance where a loan officer was apparently paid to fudge some income numbers for a borrower. When the company officials found out about the problem, they self-reported it, fired the employee who took the payoff. Court proceedings continue. Unbelievable. Isn't that ridiculous? Right, and then you got, you got these, uh, you know, city group and all these oh. other crooks. Getting away with, not, with, with murder. Billions. You know, billions and billions. Little Goldman little. Sachs. The bank yeah. underwrote more than $11 billion in federally backed mortgages, yeah. as well as billions in mortgage-backed products. Yeah. Despite bank managers knowing that most of these loans were toxic, Goldman Sachs didn't inform regulators of this knowledge and tried to speed up efforts to divest itself of the loans to unsuspecting customers. No criminal charges or fines were directed at the bank. Fabrice Torre, far from, far from the CEO of the company, was the only executive to pay any fines after he was found liable for misleading investors in a civil court. Good Lord. What a, what a joke. Well, you know, as it just explains part of the problem we have here, you know, an emerging trade agreement would make drugs less affordable. Well, that's just part of the problem, but yeah, uh, TPP, uh, I call it the toilet paper policy uh, partnership, uh, Obama's trade uh, agreement, uh, could make it harder for workers to organize. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade uh, agreement with the United States and 11 other Pacific uh, Rim countries are negotiating threatens to make prescription drugs less affordable for consumers and taxpayers. I mean, Christ, they're hardly affordable now. Yeah. Uh, I recently joined with 10 other organizations, including ARP and Consumer Union, to express oh, excuse me. our concerns to the Office of the U.S. Trade. Okay, here's a, uh, a little video. Uh, it's only a couple minutes, but uh, check this out. Okay. 
invalidated patents for two drugs that didn't meet Canada's legal standards. Oh, so this is just uh, a way to circumvent the uh, laws of individual countries that's by exactly, big corporations. That's exactly what it's about. It doesn't and, have anything to do with people. It has no, to do with corporations. Exactly. It's a getting goal. their way. That's exactly right. And why it's being pushed now is because Obama is a corporate whore. Okay, he's the corporate man. All right, he was put in by the corporations. That's right. right. The bankers put in Obama. All right, and 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 they know that anybody else that comes in after this, they're not going to have a chance with this with this deal. Because mm -hmm. you know, but you know, corporate whores are corporate whores, and that's what Obama is. And unfortunately, well, that's what we're stuck with. All right. And I, and I just hope that, uh, you know, I hope this TPP does not go through. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's such a fraud, you know. It's such a fraud that we deal with in this with this country. I mean, we can't fight. I mean, we can't fight them, you know. Mm -hmm. you know what, what the hell is the union doing for them? I don't know. The union's going to lose. Everybody's going to lose over this. And yet Obama, the great... Uh, white toothed, uh, you know, uh, smiley guy, you know, saying, let's go, guys, the TPP. He doesn't, he doesn't even say anything. He just signs no, the no, things without talking to anybody. Like, he's, he's just, uh, you know, it's, it's all done in secret. It's his policy, Lila. I didn't say that it wasn't. I said it's all he done. He put it together with, uh, with, uh, with these guys. I mean, all he, done he signed secretly. it. Sacred. Yeah, it was all, you know, it's all put together. And where's the fabulous Congress? Uh, they're they're uh, they're uh, I have no idea what they're doing. You know, waxing their fingers or something. I, I have no idea. Okay. But the the problem is, is we got nothing, folks. We really got nothing, and it's a scary situation. And I I don't I I don't know how we're going to combat this. Um, I don't either. The only way we can do it is the only way I try to do it is we do it. Lila and I is we try to. Bring it up here every Wednesday night, you know, and talk about these things as much as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, the minute the TPP came about, we put it on the air. I put it on my website. This was uh, last year, you know, when it first was revealed. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know yeah, how much we can do. Uh, This is something here. Why Senator Warren's refinance bill is a big deal. Oh, okay. Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill today uh, on May 6th uh, to allow borrowers to refinance their outstanding student loan debt. Excuse me. The Warren bill is an excellent step toward easing the crushing $1.2 trillion of student loan debt poured by graduates and reducing barriers to higher education for working families. God, I believe this. I, I just think this, this, these debts should be wiped out, personally. You know? I do, too. It really should be. It's just, it's just horrendous what's going on. And why these poor kids have to... Yeah, you know, thousands. You know, they, they believed in the American hundreds dream. Hundreds of thousands. Oh. Thousands of hundreds of thousands Awful. of dollars worth of debt to try to get a lousy job that's not even going to pay them 50000 a year, you know? It's like, good God. Uh. We have a whole generation of... Unemployed college graduates. That's right. Act is the, uh, the Bank on Student Emergency Loan Refinancing Act is an excellent step toward easing the crushing $1.2 trillion loan debt borne by graduates and reducing various higher education and working families. Average college seniors in 2012 had a balance of $30,000 facing them as they graduated. Many borrowers find themselves making payments well after the end of the standard 10-year repayment period. Like most forms of debt, student loans cannot be refinanced. The borrower is, is locked into an interest rate for the days that he or she signs the promissory note, usually as a teenager, until the debt is paid in full. And unlike those forms of debt, borrowers are unable to take advantage of lower interest rates to reduce their monthly payments and total amount of interest paid. The question we should be asking is why the government works so hard to carefully regulate growth with the variable interest rates while allowing this massive pool of government-backed loans to remain at a fixed rate, trapping millions of workers in debt and unable to buy homes and cars. Here's one answer. The government is profiting from the federal student loan program. 
It's raking in billions of dollars every year. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that by 2025, $127 billion in profits will be made off the backs of working families paying interest on student loans. In fact, some Republican members in the House have proposed student loan revenues be used to pay down the deficit. It shouldn't come as a surprise that those same politicians lobby successfully to tie student loans to the market rate, which will make student loans more difficult to pay off as the economy improves. And these are the same politicians who fight to preserve massive corporate tax subsidies that make it more profitable for companies to send jobs overseas. Simply put, they are using the debt peonage of students to pay for billion-dollar corporate giveaways. Corporations don't need help from America's taxpayers to boost their record profits. Fittingly, the Warren Refinance Bill addresses a major part of the tax giveaway to the wealthy and powerful by implementing the Buffett Rule to pay for the reduced profits. Under the Buffett Rule, many of the tax loopholes that led millionaire and billionaire CEOs reduce their taxes to almost nothing would be closed, requiring them to pay tax rates at least as high as their secretaries. For student loan borrowers, though, it's a different story. Unemployment, especially for young workers, remains unacceptably high, 10.6% for 20- to 24-year-olds. Wages are stagnant, and for young workers, wages are falling in relation to the rest of the population. Our struggling economy is producing mostly low-paying service sector jobs that offer no room for growth. In fact, 42% of those earning the minimum wage have some college education, 8% hold a bachelor's degree or higher. Congress's decision to favor corporations over students is appalling. The Warren refinancing bill helps to undo some of the damage this decision has done to students and working families. Families Allowing borrowers to refinance their student loans puts them one step closer to achieving the American dream. They'll be able to put a down payment on a home, fund their retirement, and fund their own children's education. Along with increased funding on instruction and student services in order to lower the actual cost for public two- and four-year colleges and technical schools, the Warren Refinance Bill is a terrific step toward a comprehensive policy to make post-secondary education and training available to those who want it. Makes sense to me. You know, it only makes sense. Well, I wonder if anybody else in that Congress makes sense. I doubt it. Mm. No, I don't think anybody in Congress even gives a shit. You know, there's only two. Her, Blumenthal is talking about it. Okay. And uh was it Warren? Yeah. As far as I can tell nobody. Well he's else. trying to make some difference in He's trying to make some sense out of it too. I mean it's just ridiculous, yeah. I mean to force people who have who have college education to live life in poverty? <laughs> That's exactly what they're doing. Alright? I mean why bother? Why even bother? It's like geez. No. Anyway. We didn't talk about this one. We might as well end with it. Minimum wage momentum. Vermont passes the highest state minimum wage in the country. But even this is just a... It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not even close. The momentum continues to grow as Vermont becomes the seventh state to enact the minimum wage increase this year. Vermont takes the issue seriously and will raise their wage to the highest of any state by 2018. <laughs> 2018, four years from now, when the law is fully implemented. The state's current wage of 8.73 to 8.73 an hour will be increased to 10.50 over the next four years. Whoop de freaking do! Okay, and Vermont Governor yeah, says he will be proud to sign it. Yeah, I, I would I wouldn't be proud to sign that piece, that piece of crap. I mean, come on, you know, I mean, it, you know, 8.73 doesn't get anybody anything, you know. And to give it, and then to go to 10.50 over four years, right? Ten, with the with the rate of inflation, it'll be behind, way behind. By the time they get there, minimum wage should be at least 10.50 now. That's you know? right. Should be now, you know. And uh, you know, it's just a joke. You know, it's just a joke. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. Yeah, I I got no faith in this system. Well, what did you tell me?
me was the minimum wage in Australia or New Zealand? $21.95 an hour in Australia, minimum wage. And guess what? They're working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hasn't hurt their economy. It doesn't seem to hurt them too badly. Right? So, we're anyway, right to the end of our show. We're at the end. And I want to thank everybody who joined us tonight and uh, hope you will continue. And I'll be on tomorrow night with a special rendition of Transdimensional Radio. So good night, everybody. Good night, folks. And talk to you, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Have a great night.